Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word as we continue forward together in the book of Acts. We're in chapter 9 now. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 9 today, this glorious, wondrous event, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. I'll read from verse 36 in chapter 8 through to verse 19 of chapter 9. Please listen very carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Isotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities until he came to Caesarea. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple of Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So this is a bit of a hinge point here in the book of Acts. So we're going to have a quick recap to get us reminded of everything we've seen so far in the book of Acts. So please put your seatbelt on so that uh, we can uh, have this flyover experience of the first eight chapters of the book of Acts. So first of all, in Acts chapter 1, we're introduced to this phrase describing... Luke and Acts as all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. So Jesus did and taught a lot of things while he was here before he ascended. And Jesus continues to do and teach a lot of things after he ascended through his Holy Spirit and in his people. So it might be, you've probably heard it called the Acts of the Apostles, which is yes, but it's really the continuing Acts of Jesus Christ. Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. Jesus ascends up into heaven to God's right hand. And then the fledgling new church prays and Matthias is chosen as the replacement. Key verse from chapter 1, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So how's this going to happen? By the outpouring of the Spirit. And which parts of the world are going to be impacted? Everywhere. And the process is going to be from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. And that really sets the stage for what we're going to see in the book of Acts. Chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out. They speak in tongues, miraculously able to speak in other languages in order to accelerate the proclamation of the gospel throughout the known world. This was Pentecost AD 30, I believe. Peter's first sermon is here. There's many conversions. The church is growing. There's mutual care and assistance. There's many signs and wonders taking place accompanying the growth of the church and the proclamation of the gospel. Big things are happening. Key verse in chapter 2, 46 and 47, about that church. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Who is this Lord? This is Jesus. These are the acts of Jesus Christ. The things he's doing in and through his church by the power of his Holy Spirit. Jerusalem is being overtaken by the gospel. Acts chapter 3. Lame man is healed there at the temple. We have Peter's second sermon. Peter and John are together there. The key text here is from 18 and 19. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he is thus fulfilled. And this is during Peter's second sermon. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The message of Jesus Christ is good news. We can be forgiven. Even these feisty, thick-skulled, stiff-necked Jews are being offered the gospel. Acts chapter 4 Peter and John are arrested, so the persecution begins. And this is then their first appearance before the Sanhedrin. Teaching and preaching in the name of Jesus is forbidden at this first court. And what do, what do you think they do? They pray. 
Remember that prayer? They go to Psalm 2. They know what the Word of God says, and they pray that prayer of faith to God in the midst of being persecuted by the most powerful force in their nation. They pray for boldness and mighty signs and wonder. They know where the Supreme Court really is. And we have this vital, united church in action. And we see mutual aid and assistance taking place for one another. And Barnabas is given as that good example there at the end of chapter 4. And then I think verse 31 in chapter 4 is a key verse for us. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. So we see immediate answer to prayer. They prayed for boldness. God gave it to them. And they continued to speak the word of God with confidence, knowing that their king was on the throne and that his word would go forth and that he would accomplish through them what he told them to do. Acts chapter 5, a lot of things happen in this chapter. Ananias and Sapphira lie to God and they drop dead. Church growth occurs. There's this so much power going forth that the sick are actually laid in the streets of Jerusalem to be healed. The gospel then spreads to cities outside Jerusalem, so they begin, begin to see the gospel spilling out of Jerusalem. The apostles are arrested again, but the angel says, watch this, and they're freed from prison and sent back to the temple to preach. So they know where they're supposed to be, right? Jesus had told them there would be a spreading effect of the gospel. The angel tells them, no, it's, time to, it's still time to stay here. So they go back to the temple to preach. The Sanhedrin goes and gets them, brings them in, and they said, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? So clearly they ignored that godless, unlawful commandment. The apostle said, we ought to obey God rather than men. And then there's Gamaliel's advice. Remember, hey, this could be of God. Don't fight against it because you're fighting against God. And if it's not of God, it'll flame out like two other rebellions did in the past that were not of God. The apostles are beaten, and that word there is very severe. They were severely beaten and repeated again the prohibition, do not preach in Jesus' name. And they're sent out. You might think they were kind of uh, gloomy-faced. They were not. They rejoice and keep on preaching the gospel everywhere in Jerusalem. They were not sad, nor were they discouraged, nor were they pushed aside from the mission that God gave them to do. Key verse here, chapter 5, verses 41 and 42. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Some of those given into the woke culture need to hear that scripture, don't they? And we are also tempted to give way when people threaten to shame us, are we not? Or other things that they threaten us with. Acts 6. We see the seven proto-deacons are chosen after the first internal church dispute. So they not only have threats from outside the church, but there's, there's potential for division in the church. And then Stephen is accused of blasphemy. And we'd been introduced to him as one of the deacons. I think a key verse here is in verse 7 in chapter 6. Then the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So when the church learned by the Spirit's power to go through this dispute in a way that built the church and brought people together, it continued to strengthen the church. We saw the church grow in and even priests at this point are brought to the faith. Acts 7, Stephen gives his long defense, right? The history of stiff-necked people, that's what we can call his defense because that's where he ends up. You've always resisted the Holy Spirit. And then what happens to him? Well, they crown him as uh, this great prophet and they receive, no, they kill him. 
He is martyred, and Saul, we're introduced to him, Saul is present, approving of the murder of Stephen. I think key verses here. First, verse 51, Stephen says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. So he's very direct with them, and this, again, describes all the hard-hearted Jews we'll see throughout the remainder of this book. But then we see the way we're supposed to respond. Stephen says in verse 60, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. So the meekness is what conquers. We see that. Acts chapter 8, Saul is making havoc of the church at this point. So we're getting a, a more of an introduction to Saul at this point in time. And then there's great persecution occurring against the church at Jerusalem by now. And Stephen is buried. Stephen, in God's providence, honoring Stephen, tells us of his burial. The story doesn't just end and he's forgotten. Stephen is buried by devout men. So we have some good examples given to us. We've got Barnabas, we've got Stephen, we've got bad examples. Ananias, Sapphira, Saul. Philip preaches the gospel in Samaria. This is another part of chapter 8. So we see it spreading out of Jerusalem into Samaria. Multitudes believe great power comes with the gospel again. Demons are cast out. Lots of healings are taking place. The people are joyful. There's joy in that city is what we're told. Then we bump into Simon the sorcerer, probably the first described apostate of the New Testament times. We don't know. Maybe Ananias and Sapphira in that group. Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch comes next. We see Philip continuing, not discouraged by what happened with uh, Simon the sorcerer, focused on his mission. The eunuch is converted. The gospel's going outside of Judea and Samaria now to the ends of the earth. We see this occurring already through chapter 8. And then Philip doesn't need a plane ticket, boat ticket, a horse, a donkey, a carriage, because he is transported, or a new pair of shoes, because he is transported to Azotus miraculously, which we know is Ashdod from the Old Testament. So again, this is all the Philistine territory over here. The gospel is going everywhere, even to the enemies of God, because all the enemies of God can be made the friends of God. And so this is, these are the themes that we've bumped into so far. We see the gospel going to Samaria, gospel going to the ends of the earth, Ethiopia. And even this coastal preaching that Philip did between Azotus and Caesarea is a foreshadowing because guess what the coast can do? You get on a boat and you can go all over the majority of the known world at that point in time. I think it's important to have a little timeline real quick. Saul's conversion likely occurred sometime around A.D. 33. And this is per the timeline put together by Pastor Phil Kaiser. It's called a conservative chronology of Paul with emphasis upon the correlation with Galatians. Okay? So <clears throat> when you look at Galatians, compare it side by side, there's time frames given. <clears throat> there's other things we know from history about when certain famines took place. So we can date things in the book of Acts. We can date Paul's life. It's helpful. I put a link there for you. Got a map here in your sermon notes. I think it's a helpful one that has a lot of cities listed on it to get a sense of where things are occurring. If you look there at your map and find Jerusalem, you can see, I'm sure you probably recall, the path from Jerusalem down towards Gaza that Philip was on when he met with the Ethiopian eunuch. And then you can see Ashdod, a couple of cities up from Gaza right there. And he goes all the way up from Ashdod, all, which is Azotus, all the way up the coast there through Jaffa, Apollonia up to Caesarea, preaching along all those cities along the coast. So we're getting a sense of where things have gone already. 
Of course, south of Egypt is Ethiopia over here on your map. And then where's Damascus? Where's Damascus? Do you see it up there, upper right? Look how far the gospel's gone already. We know the gospel had gone there because Ananias is a disciple of Jesus and he's already there. He's, and, and of course, he's, he knows there's Christians there because he's got letters to go and round them up. Look how far the gospel has already spread in this short time. Okay, so that's our background. Verses 1 through 9, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. There are a lot of important things to see here. Jesus is at work. Look at what Jesus is doing. We first see Saul the villain in verses 1 and 2. And then Saul meets Jesus in verses 3 through 7 and things change. And then blind Saul fasts in Damascus. And then some questions as usual. How we can know and obey and love God in light of these principles. So with that introduction, let's dive into the text. Verses 1 and 2. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So let's ponder this idea of breathing threats and murder. Luke, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants us to get a real taste of the heart of Saul. His havoc against the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ has not stopped. It has continued. And it's now described as breathing threats and murder. Breathing is something you do all the time, right? Or uttering is another way you can think of this Greek word. So Paul, not yet, Saul is known to be a hater of Jesus and his church. Commentary says from Hawker, the Holy Ghost hath most graciously shown in the history of Saul of Tarsus to what a desperate height the human mind void of grace is capable of advancing in malice and hatred against the Lord and that the church of Christ might learn that there is no difference between one man and another in the Adam nature in which all are born. The Lord, the Spirit, hath here shown in the example of one of the most eminent servants of Jesus as he afterwards proved what our state would do while unawakened and unregenerated before the Lord. And what the Lord enables his people to do when called by sovereign grace from darkness to light and from the power of sin and Satan to the living God. So we're going to see here a beautiful display of these wondrous theological principles that we hold so dear. God's sovereign grace on display, saving a heart bent on hell, a heart filled with hatred towards God, a heart not seeking God, a heart filled with malice and hatred towards God. And this teaches us about our own estate. This teaches us about God's power. Would Paul have chosen God? Did Paul have it in himself to see and enter the kingdom of God? He did not. Was God's grace and power in his life insufficient to give him new life? Insufficient to overcome his sin? Not at all. So this is a theme for you to consider for yourself for the remainder of the sermon. Moving on. Saul is commissioned by, high, by the high priest and has letters from the high priest to the Damascus synagogues. Somehow they know Christianity's already gone up there. We've got to go stamp it out. Maybe they were trying to contain it. You know, thinking in terms of infectious diseases, right? Maybe they're trying to get out around the outside of it and, and, and 
bring all this back in. If we can contain it, we can, we can finally kill it. So here we see Saul's commitment to the apostate Jewish leadership. He's sold out. He's dead in his sin and trespasses, totally deceived, and he is imprisoned within the system that he loves, his own mind and this apostate system. He's devoted to the wrong authority. He's devoted to the wrong authority. In addition, we see Saul's devotion as he attempts to extend the persecution into Syria. Paul talks about this in approximately A.D. 49. So approximately, if we got the dates right, about 16 years later, Paul, Saul descri- well, Paul describes what he went through as Saul. He says, For you have heard, this is Galatians 1, verses 13 and 14, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation. So he had gotten like early promotion. You ever been in the military? (laughs) You know, know, most guys your age are going to be whatever in 03, but this fellow's in 05 or in 06 already, which is like unheard of. Paul's this kind of go-getter. I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my father. Commentary says, Saul's eagerness to help oppress the followers of Jesus comes to expression in the fact that he took the initiative to expand the persecution beyond Jerusalem and Judea. He went to the high priest, Joseph Caiaphas, and we saw this earlier in Acts, and asked for letters which would give him the authority to arrest the followers of Jesus in Damascus, both men and women, and to take them to Jerusalem where they would be interrogated and punished. So our hearts are not neutral towards God, apart from Christ. Our hearts hate God. Our hearts hate God and His people. Our hearts hate God and His people and His ways. We deserve hell, apart from... It's not like, oh, well, maybe. No, we deserve... We are stiff-necked rebels apart from Christ, who deserve his wrath. One application of today's sermon would be for you to go and look in the mirror and recall your flesh and say, you deserve hell. You deserve hell. Because that's what you and me deserve. Apart from Christ, that's what we deserve. Saul is demonstrating this to us. He was just more advanced in sin, perhaps, than maybe you ever have gotten in your life. Next, we see this phrase, the way... I think it's worth remembering, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the followers of Jesus were following Jesus. That's what they were known for. They were reminding everyone who'd heard or seen anything about Jesus, his followers were acting just like him. So Saul is comprehensive. He's going to arrest all the Christians. Not only does he desire to persecute them throughout the whole world and destroy the church, He wants to arrest all Christians, men and women. You see, the message has to be shut down. The message has to be shut down. Women can share the message. He wants to bind them and bring them to Jerusalem for trial before the Sanhedrin. He's filled with burning hatred for all Christians and the lying message in his mind that they are spreading. Now, hear Paul's own description of his hatred. That's what he said in Acts 26. And this is approximately A.D. 57. So, if we got it right, about 21 years later, he says... This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, so he was indeed uttering murder, breathing murder, 
And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So there's the threats. Blaspheme. Blaspheme. Commentary says, By this commission, all that worship God in the way that they called heresy, though agreeing exactly with the original institutes, even of the Jewish church, whether they were men or women, they were to be prosecuted, even the weaker sex, who in a case of this nature might deserve excuse or at least compassion, shall find neither with Saul. So, Saul's a villain. Saul's lost in his sin. Saul said in Ephesians, Paul, by the Spirit, wrote in Ephesians, As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you used to live. This is on display in the life of Saul. But now we're going to see Jesus is greater than sin. His power, his grace are greater than even the depths of this level of expressed hatred for God. Verses 3 through 7. Note the various points along the way. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, And you'll be told what you must do. And the man who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. It's a very simple exchange between Jesus and Saul in terms of the words that are written. But there's a lot more happening here. First of all, there's a light from heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ begins Saul's conversion by suddenly bringing a light from heaven. So this is not a celestial event that you can find in the archives of NASA. NASA would not have an explanation for this. This is similar to what Stephen saw, to when Stephen saw Jesus in heaven at God's right hand. It's very likely that Saul sees Jesus. The first act of sovereign grace here said to have been manifested to Saul was a light from heaven. He afterward, when speaking of it, described it as above the brightness of the sun, though it was now midday. The light that came upon Saul and his traveling companions, even though it was the middle of the day, was brighter than the sun, Acts 26. And so this is again Saul, or later this is Paul, describing what Saul went through some 21 years later. While thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. Okay, so what happens next? It's kind of easy to miss this. He falls to the ground. He falls to the ground. Don't miss that. This is Saul's first response to Jesus. What is worship? We're going to look at today in our men's study. Worship is responding to God. 
in light of who He really is from a, a heart that's been born again. And so, that's it. Saul responds to God by falling down on the ground. He doesn't say anything. He just falls down on the ground. It's not like he'd made a conscious choice, but the brightness and the power of the light just put him on the ground. So there are principles here about what God does to his worshipers and what happens to them. To say it's a response, yes, but it's also just what happens to us when we're in God's presence. This seems similar to John's experience on Patmos. Remember that? From Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. Look at the similarities here. John writing, book of Revelation. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. So I hope that we will note together that worship of God is always a response. Real worship is always a response to who he is. Anything else is not worship. He reveals himself to us graciously. We could never see him. We could never in his kingdom. We could never know anything about him on our own. And he in his graciousness reveals himself to us. Gives us eyes to see. Gives us new birth to perceive. And then we respond. And the responses are predictable throughout scripture. One of them is to fall down like you're dead. To be so humbled. To be so brought low about who you are in in comparison to who God is, there's nothing that can be said. So next, I want us to note that when we are brought into God's presence, note again that we fall down to the ground. So knowing God by necessity involves being brought low, and that is not simply an intellectual calculation you make based on understanding truth. That is not simply an intellectual calculation that you make based on understanding truth. It's what happens when God brings you into his presence. You are humbled. We are humbled. Commentary says those whom Christ designs for the greatest honors are commonly first laid low. Those who are designed to excel in knowledge and grace are commonly laid low first in a sense of their own ignorance and sinfulness. Those whom God will employ are first struck with a sense of their unworthiness to be employed. This is what happens to anybody brought into God's presence. That old joke, he's God and I'm not. It's, but it's, it's very serious when it happens to you. This ignorance is 
seemingly endless when we can see who God is and see who we are. And compared to Him, it is endless. Our own sinfulness, our own inadequacies are magnified when we see, when we bump into, when He gives us a taste of His glory, His majesty, His perfections, His beauty. Oh, who am I that you would think of me? And so Jesus has brought Paul into this kind of moment. Saul, I keep saying it, has brought Saul, and I don't know exactly when he becomes Paul, right? Maybe it's during this encounter. Maybe it's in the next scripture we'll come to. But Jesus questions Saul in the midst of Saul experiencing this being brought low. So he falls to the ground because of this bright light, brighter than the sun shining around him, probably sees Jesus. And so what does Jesus do next? What's the next act of Jesus Christ? He talks to him. And I just want us to notice, you know, he doesn't make a list of how horrible he is, right? He could have done that. I'm pretty sure Jesus knew all of those things, right? (laughs) He just says, Saul, Saul, note the tenderness, note the strength. And I'm sure many of you are remembering Mary, Mary, right? We went through that in Luke already, didn't we? The double vocative, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So Jesus asks Saul to examine his own motives for his sinful persecution activities. Now, if it's true that Saul has had this brief glimpse of Jesus and he's seen him for who he is and he's fallen down and then he hears this question, I'm persecuting you? I've done this to you? So, conviction of sin begins the conscious conversion process. This is what Saul is likely going through. He'd been seeing the faces of men and women and boys and girls, right? He'd been thinking of all of these horrible things that they're spreading lies about. He's defending the one true God. And he sees him and he says, you're persecuting me. Why? So, Saul is confronted with his sin in this perfect way because Jesus knows the questions to ask us, doesn't he? Jesus knows the questions to ask us. Also, this is something important. This is a theological point made in a beautiful way by Jesus. And he does it twice in this section. He here shows that persecuting his church is to persecute him. To mistreat his beloved saints to mistreat him. Jesus suffers when his church suffers. Commentary says, why persecutest thou me? He thought he was persecuting only a a company of poor, weak, silly people that were an offense and eyesore to the Pharisees, little imagining that it was one in heaven, that that little imagining that is one in heaven that he was all this while insulting. For surely if he had known, he would not have persecuted the Lord of glory. Note, those who persecute the saints persecute Christ himself. 
And he takes what is done against them as done against himself. And accordingly will be the judgment in that great day. I hope this is a a wake-up call for each and every one of us. We're to love our neighbors as ourselves, but especially the household of God. Especially the household of God. I mean, brothers and sisters, when we mistreat one another, we are, we're harming Christ himself. Matthew 25, 45. Then he will answer them saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. So Jesus, as I've said, uses this double vocative saying Saul twice, there's meaning here for us to not miss. Because he's the same Jesus, right? So it's not just a theological point. I want you, we need to know Christ's heart. Like, put your name here, Matt, Matt, right? Put your name here. Jesus uses this double vocative. It's tender and it's convicting and it's very personal. And the Holy Spirit comes to you in a very personal, individual way. When he convicts you of your sin. He'll say your name and he will ask you the questions that matter for your life. Commentary says, He was called by his name and that doubled Saul, Saul. Calling him by his name intimates the particular regard that Christ had to him. His calling him by name brought the conviction home to his conscience and put it past dispute to whom the voice spoke this. The tender concern that the blessed Jesus had for him and for his recovery, he speaks as one in earnest. And look at these double vocatives. It's like Martha, Martha in Luke 10, or Simon, Simon in Luke 22, or O Jerusalem, Jerusalem in Matthew 23. When we sin, it is not against a philosophical system or a set of ideas that float around. When we sin, we sin against Christ. We hurt Christ when we sin. And when he comes to us, it's not, hey, look at these terrible things that you've done. And then he stops. It's, you've hurt me. You've harmed me with your sin. And that is true for every sin that you will ever commit. It's against Christ. And you hurt him. When you do that, especially when the sin is against those for whom he died. Oh, may we be so tender to one another, so filled with grace and love and mercy and kindness and living out all the one another's from that little book that we're trying to make a part of our lives from Scripture. Brothers and sisters, watch out. Jesus is hurt when we hurt his church. Next. Saul replies, Saul replies, he has a question for Jesus. It's okay to ask questions of God in the right way at the right time. So he's on the ground. He's probably had this vision of Jesus. Don't know if he's blind yet. Don't know when he goes blind for sure. Probably when the light turns off. He's heard Christ's voice from heaven. The king's voice. The ascended king's voice. And he's under the light of the king. Probably we heard Jesus is shining his countenance brighter than the sun. Probably the light is Jesus himself. Shining a piece of Mount Zion's glory right on him at that moment. 
He's tenderly convicted of him, him of his sin through that question. And so Saul's not arguing anymore. There's no goads he's kicking right now. So this question shows Saul has yet to understand the situation. He doesn't get it yet. Saul does not know that this is Jesus Christ speaking to him. But again, true worship always involves us responding to God's initiative, responding to what we do know with, with honest questing, with honest questions. So Saul says very simply, who are you, Lord? So if he did see Jesus, and if Jesus' face still uh, was similar enough to his face on earth, apparently he had not seen Jesus during Jesus' life on earth, or he's so glorious he just doesn't understand who he's looking at. So see that Saul does, does now know enough to say to the voice, Lord. He believes he's having an encounter with God. Not only does he believe that God exists, but he believes that God has now come and brought him low. And that he's persecuting this person who is God. Commentary says, The context of the flashing light, the fall to the ground, the heavenly voice, and the question regarding the reason for his activities as a persecutor of believers in Jesus indicates that the term Lord is more than a polite address used in encounters with a person. While he does not yet know, while he does not yet now know, at this instant, with whom he is dealing, he would assume, as a devout Jew who knows the Old Testament theophanies, that he is being addressed either by an angel or by God himself. Who are you, Lord? That's a good question for us Christians, isn't it? You want to know God? (laughs) Who are you, Lord? Show me your face. Your face I seek, O Lord. Well, Jesus answers him. And again, in his answer, we see the unity of Christ with his church. Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So he he tells him who he is. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So Jesus reveals himself to Saul. And once again, he emphasizes to him how filled with hatred, malice, threats, and murder He could have just said, I am Jesus, to answer Saul's question, right? Saul needed to hear again whom you are persecuting. Brothers and sisters, we need to repetitively hear about our sin. And the Word of God does that for us. The Word of God does that for us, constantly displaying to us our own sin and our own need to repent. And the Word of God, God Himself, knows how many times you need to hear it. So Saul is filled with hatred and malice and threats and murder against Jesus Himself, not just against these poor people. And Saul also now understands that this Jesus is God at this point in time. Commentary says, I am that Jesus whom thou persecutest, And therefore it will be at thy peril if thou persist in this wicked course. There's nothing more effectual to awaken and humble the soul than to see sin to be against Christ. An affront to him and a contradiction to his designs. And again, 
If we stay on the horizontal and we only think about sin as back and forth between one another, we will not be appropriately convicted of how foul our sin is. Okay, what about this phrase, kick against the goads? Do you wonder what that means? I didn't understand it until this sermon. I had to look into it. What is a goad? It's, it's an iron goad for urging on oxen, horses, and other beasts of burden. So it's a tool for pain, a tool for prodding, a tool for getting a beast to go where it doesn't want to go. And so that's the source of the proverb, kick against the goad, which means to offer vain and perilous or ruinous resistance to what you're supposed to be doing. So Saul had been resisting doing the will of Christ in his persecution of the church. He had been resisting, apparently, some convictions that had been going on in his life. God had given him enough of his word, obviously, to know that what he was doing was wrong. So he's silencing his conviction. He's silencing it. He won't have it. He won't hear it. He's kicking against the goads, and that's a dangerous thing to do. So, what does this mean? Jesus shows Saul that he's been acting like a stubborn animal, refusing to be tamed. Okay, so one of the things we said today is looking in the mirror and say, you deserve hell. You are a stubborn animal, apart from Christ. Apart from Christ. Okay, and that stubborn animal still lives within you. That's one of the, one of the key things that happens in the fall is we become like animals. Ruled by our pleasures, controlled by our hungers and our appetites and the baser desires, whether they be good or bad, we become slaves of our condition. And so that's what Jesus is saying to him. That's what he says to us today as well in our flesh. That's who you are. That's who I am. Would such a one, would such a beast have what it takes to see and enter the kingdom of God on their own? Would such a beast choose to even think about it? No. Not to the extent necessary. Would such a beast even consider that following those desires and hungers is sinful? Being ruled by those desires and hungers is sinful. So Saul somehow has been refusing the preaching of the gospel we know He's been stubbornly acting along with all of the other stiff-necked Jews of the day. It's hard, commentary says, it is in itself an absurd and evil thing and will be of fatal consequences to him that does it. Those kick at the goad that stifle and smother. Ask yourself if you do this. Those kick at the goad that stifle and smother the convictions of conscience, that rebel against God's truths and laws, that quarrel with his providences, and that persecute and oppose his ministers because they reprove them and their words are as goads and as nails. Those that revolt more and more when they are stricken by the word or rod of God that are enraged at reproofs and fly in the face of their reprovers, these kick against the pricks or the goads and will have a great deal to answer for. So how do you respond to the word of God when the Lord comes to you by his spirit and convicts you of your sin and calls you to make different choices, calls you to repent and change. 
Next, Paul acknowledges Jesus as Lord and seeks to obey Jesus. Listen to the text. So he, trembling and astonished, so we can see Paul is getting some understanding here, and it's working on him. Trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Now isn't that such a simple expression of conversion? Lord, what do you want me to do? Somebody write a hymn with that name. That would be a great hymn, wouldn't it? Lord, what somebody probably already did. Lord, what do you want me to do? Trembling. We've, we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Saul is experiencing soul-shaking exposure to God. He grabs a hold of us when he brings us back to life and he shakes us all the way until glory. And that shaking, that trembling in his presence is because of our sin and because he's shaking it out of us, if you will, with his glorious hands. He's making us like Jesus. That's what he's doing. Saul is trembling. It's always a part of what we God's creatures experience when he and his grace brings us into his presence like this. There's numerous stories in Scripture and throughout history of what happens to people who are brought into the presence of God. And it is not like having a hot dog that you really like or, wow, those are good burgers. It is a soul-shaking act of God when he comes and he convicts you of your sin, what you have done, how you have harmed him, and then he shows you the cross. Saul is astonished. Well, you would be astonished too if you thought you were doing God's will and you discovered you were actually attacking Jesus. He's been hating God, and he now understands it. And he sees that Jesus Christ is not dead. Jesus Christ is alive, and he reigns, and this silly message of resurrection is true. And he's changed. He's trembling and astonished as he ponders the gravity of what has just been revealed to him. We see evidence of Saul's regeneration. He has a new master. Okay? Regeneration is just not, is not only evidenced by an awareness of your sin and confession of your sin to God and faith that Jesus has died on the cross for your sins. Regeneration is also evidenced by faith that that same Jesus who died rose up from the dead, ascended into heaven, and was enthroned at God's right hand, and he is your Lord and Master, and you belong to Him. You are His. You are no one else's. All the prior claims on you are gone. Your own claims on yourself are gone. That's what Paul went. That's what Saul went through. He calls Him Lord again, referencing Christ Himself, not some ubiquitous. Okay, your Lord, but now it's Jesus is His Lord. What do you want me to do? Saul, without a word about it, in some fashion at this point, has admitted that he has been in rebellion against God in Christ. And Saul now looks to Jesus for his instructions. Those letters in his pocket? From those high priests? If they had toilets, he'd flush flush it. If they had flames, he probably burned them. Who knows what he did with them? Maybe he framed them. I don't know. What would you have done with it? 
They don't, they're, no. A letter from a high priest, a vision from Jesus that puts you down on the ground, you make the comparison. This is always, brothers and sisters, this is always going to accompany genuine faith. And that is looking to Christ as Lord and seeking to hear His voice and to follow Him. When you're, when you're looking at yourself and you're, you're saying, okay, am I a Christian? Do I have real faith in Jesus Christ? This is one of the questions that you ask. Have you said, do you say regularly, Lord, you're my master. What do you want me to do? Man, that's the cry of our soul when Jesus has brought us to see what he's done for us. He's exposed us to our sin. He's shown us that we hate him, we deserve hell, that we're beasts, and that he suffered on the cross for us. He came, voluntarily suffered on the cross for us and took all of God's wrath upon himself. He shows this to us. Lord, what do you want me to do? We see him ascended, enthroned, reigning. Lord, what do you want me to do? Commentary says, a serious desire to be instructed by Christ in the way of salvation is an evidence of a good work begun in the soul. Lord Jesus, what wilt thou have me to do? Did not Saul know what he had to do? Had he not his commission in his pocket? And what had he to do but to go and execute it? No. He had done enough of this work already and resolves now to change his master and employ himself better. Now it is not, what will the high priest and the elders have me to do? What will my own wicked appetites and passions have me to do? But what wilt thou have me to do? The great change in conversion is wrought upon the will and consists in the resignation of that to the will of Jesus Christ. So this is a call to wholehearted worship and service of God. Lay aside the baubles and the lies of this world that will distract you. Watch out for the thorns of this world, the cares, the pleasures, the riches that will choke out your faith. Focus on Jesus. Be rooted in Him and grow up unto fruitfulness. Well, the Lord responds to Paul. He responds to each of us whenever we ask such a wonderful question. And Jesus said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So when we seek the Lord's direction, be encouraged. Whoever you are, wherever you are in your life, when you seek the Lord's direction, when you say, Lord, what would you have me to do? He will guide you into his will. He is your good shepherd. And if you belong to him, then you know his voice. You will hear his voice and you will follow him. And he will lead you step by step along the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. When we ask according to his glory and his kingdom, brothers and sisters, our gracious king will shepherd us. He's not busy. He's not distracted. He's not got other things going on. He's not focused on your failures and the ways you've let him down. He knows you're a sheep. He knows you need food and water and nourishment, and green grass, and, and the rod and the crook from time to time as well. He knows, and He loves us. He died for us. And He will, He hears your prayers, and He will guide you. You are not alone.
Also, look at the simplicity of this. It's not the differential equations, right? It's just <laughs> go on into Damascus and wait for what you'll be told what you must do. Jesus leads us tenderly, brothers and sisters, preparing us along the way to know him, trust him, and obey him more and more. He's about to receive a heavy dose of commandments after the scales fall off and he eats and Ananias brings him the word of God. He wasn't ready for that yet, apparently. He needed to wait. He needed to probably ponder his sin. He needed to grow up some. Jesus prepares us along the way to know him. He knows exactly how much faith you have. He prepares us along the way, giving us commandments that stretch our faith, require us to trust him more than we did before he commanded us. And he gives us more faith. And we'll obey him more and more. And through the obedience, we'll know him better and better. He tells us that he manifests himself to us when we obey his commandments. Jesus says to Paul, to Saul, you will be told what you must do. So the unspoken commandment is go wait. Go wait for more. Commentary says Christ manifests himself to his people by degrees in both what he does and would he have them to do, though they know not now they shall know hereafter. Brothers and sisters, the Lord reveals his will to us one day at a time, one week at a time, one month at a time. Wait for God. He will show you. So what happens next? Saul obeys. Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. So he obeys Jesus, the simple command that Jesus gave him. He goes in Damascus, and he waits for further instructions. Now, he doesn't go get baptized, and so that's why there's some conversation about whether he's been born again yet, whether he's been converted yet. Often God commands us, his commands to us that will involve us a requirement to wait for further instructions. Be faithful. We are faithful to wait and not go whenever the Lord says wait. He's done this already, right? He told him to go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit, right? Saul fasts in Damascus while he is blind. We're not told exactly why, We need to see the Lord often surprises us with frightening providences. Okay, as thrilling as it must have been to be able to see what Saul was shown, I wonder how terrifying it was for him to be blind. Yet in his blindness, Saul is given the opportunity here to have fewer distractions. We can say that for sure. His mind will be more easily set upon the last sight he saw, which was probably Jesus. Jesus in his shining glory from heaven and the knowledge of his great sin against God. Saul gives another evidence of his faith. He's in complete fast for three days as he seeks the Lord and as he waits upon the Lord. It's probably that he's just so overcome with what has occurred, his own sin, the knowledge of who God is, Christ, and what he's been doing to Jesus that he just has no appetite. I don't know, have you ever been brought to a spot that your sin and how you have harmed others was brought to your awareness and you just felt like you couldn't even eat? 
because of what you've done? I have. It's, it's horrible. And, you know, I think probably all of us would have little appetite if the Lord would bring us into a sense of how damaging our sin is to others and how hurtful our sin is, how much we grieve our Savior when we sin. Commentary says, We have reason to think he was all this time rather in the belly of hell, suffering God's terrors for his sins, which were now set in order before him. He was in the dark concerning his own spiritual state and was so wounded in spirit for sin that he could relish neither meat nor drink. So, that makes sense that that's what Saul was dealing with here. But he's got the bright hope of Jesus. Even though he can't see with his eyes, his memory is showing him. So quickly, brothers and sisters, not much longer, some questions to know and to love and obey God. I've already asked you a lot today. Do you understand and believe that your flesh is no better than Saul's? Can you honestly look in the mirror at yourself and say, you deserve hell apart from Christ? So this is speaking about you apart from Christ. There's nothing in you that the Lord saw that caused him to come and say, oh, how precious you are. It's not like that, that dirty, rotten dog that's you know, smelly and stinky, but there's some sign of adorableness there, and so you bring the dog in and you clean him up. No, no. We're objects of wrath. That's it. All we do is elicit God's wrath and anger apart from Christ. That's all we can do apart from Christ. If you are not a Christian, you are constantly bringing God's wrath upon yourself. And anything that you say or do, even as a Christian, that is from the flesh is by necessity on Christ who became the object of wrath for us. Do you see in your flesh that you hate God, you hate His people, and you hate His ways? So you don't want to be here today. In your flesh, you do not want to be here. In your flesh, you do not want to open His Word. In your flesh, you do not want to worship Him or serve Him or call Him Master or say, Lord, lead me. In your flesh, you do not want to be with other people. In your flesh... You don't want any of this. So when you taste those urges, know where it's coming from. Because right? you might be tricked and say, well, the pastor's going to preach too long today. I don't want to go. Well, maybe he will. But you don't want to be here because of your sin not wanting to be near God. Because guess what, brothers and sisters? We are in the presence of God right now today. By His grace, according to His promises, we are in His presence. So all the things, that God, all those one another's, all the acts of obedience, all the paths of righteousness, you hate them in your flesh. And when you find yourself not wanting to be a part of that, that is your flesh. And then you will go on to rationalize, well, I don't feel so good. Or yeah, those people, I mean, I mean, they do the same thing every Sunday over and over again. Or whatever it is, kind of rationalization you might have in your mind, that is from your flesh. Because the words of life are coming forth today and you're being fed by the word of God today and the Holy Spirit of God is encouraging you and strengthening you and making you more like Jesus today. And that's what your sin does not want. And not just here, but anywhere. 
people of God are meeting together faithfully. Or in your private worship. The same principles apply. It is your flesh that keeps you. Because you hate God, you hate his people, and you hate his ways. Apart from his gracious work in your life. Praise be to God who will rescue us from this body of death. Thanks be to the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, next. Have you been brought low? Have you been humbled by God like this? Like what Saul? Exposed. Experienced his glory upon you. His questioning presence. His conviction. Has your soul fallen down on the ground? Maybe you've fallen down on the ground. Hey, look, we kneel for a reason here, brothers and sisters. It's not just for show. If God were to do this in our midst right now, we would all fall down. Every one of us. But he doesn't always do it like this. He humbles us in various ways. Have you been brought low like this? <clears throat> Another way of saying it, I saw a patient this last week with bromhydrosis. Never seen it before. And he smelled up the entire office. And it was horrible. Poor, poor guy. Didn't even smell it. Didn't even know. Didn't even know. Have you smelled yourself? It's another way of asking this question. Has God given you a whiff of yourself? Because that's what sin does. You know how it is when you're in a stinky place long enough, you don't smell it anymore. Brothers and sisters, your sin stinks. So does mine. And you're a lot better at smelling others than you are yourself. Have you smelled your own sin? Has God brought you low like that, like he did for Saul when he sat there in darkness for three days, aware of his own sin? And, and in that, when God does this, do you inquire of the Lord in meekness and humility? Do you reach out to him and confess your sin to him and ask him to lead you, trusting in his forgiveness? This is the walk of faith. Or are you prone to kick against the goads? Because, you know, the first thing that you want to do when God comes in his word, whether it's through a friend or through your own time of the word or through the pastor, the first thing you want to do when you start sniffing your own sin is, well, that other person is a lot stinkier than I am. That's the very first thing. Or, Or that person who's bringing the word, well, you need to go and just look at yourself is what you need to do. So do you kick against the goads or do you humble yourself before the word of God? Next. Is Jesus your master? Is Jesus your master? You devoted yourself to him, forsaking all other masters, including yourself. This is an important fruit of salvation. One of the things that characterized ancient Israel and the the church over the years, over the centuries, over the millennia, is syncretism, polytheism, right? They would worship all the gods of the land and worship Yahweh all at the same time, and they thought it was cool. Do you think Jehovah, the holy God, thought the same way? We do the same things when we populate our hearts with all, with all the gods of this age. And we have things that we love more than the Lord. Things that we desire more than Him. Voices that we heed more than His. Examine yourself. 
Is Jesus your master? Because there's a river from heaven that comes when he's your master. And these streams of living water, John 7, will flow out of you. This worship of your master will be spontaneous as he gives you drinks from heaven. Because worship is just a response to God from the heart that's been brought back to life and been given a vision of who he really is and who we really are and what he's really done for us. We're the body of Christ. And do you see how Christ identifies with his people? I'll end with this. I've said it once already, but I think this is an important thing to emphasize, especially in today's world where we're just so snarky with each other. We've all been trained by Facebook or the news, just all the constant ungodly speech that we've been marinated in, all of us. When you heard a saint, you heard Jesus. I'm not directing at this at any one of us or any particular ideas or experiences. I don't have anything in mind. But when you hurt a saint, you hurt Jesus. Conversely, when you encourage a saint, when you comfort one of your brothers and sisters, Jesus. You touch the heart of Jesus as well. You've done it to the least of these. You've done it to him as well. So let us respond to the preaching of God's word today, brothers and sisters, with gladness, with rejoicing and continued worship of the one true God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful that you have saved us, that you've brought us to the knowledge of our sin. Lord, we acknowledge that in our own sin and corruption, we would have never sought you. We were dead. We were spiritual corpses. And you brought us back to life. You saved us. You brought us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And you didn't just save us a little. You saved us to the uttermost. And none can take us from your hands. And you've given us your spirit and your word and one another and all the glorious means of grace. And you've given us this great life mission to participate in the great commission and the conquest of your gospel over all the rivers and mountains and over all the earth, over all the nations, over all the peoples. Oh, help us, we pray, Lord, to be humbled low. Make us meek. That our heart would cry in sincerity, you are our only master. And that we would lay aside all the idols, all the distractions, all the things that draw us from you. And that the time that we spend and the resources that we have, that we would look to you and say, Lord, what would you have me to do? Day by day. And enjoy the great joy of being shepherded by you. Oh, we praise you, Lord Jesus Christ. You are our good shepherd. In Jesus' name.